Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 46. This is one of the most beautiful and beloved of all the Psalms. It was Martin Luther's favorite Psalm, and several lines and phrases of his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, are borrowed from its verses. The ascription reads as follows. To the choirmaster of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. We aren't sure what Alamoth means. It sounds somewhat like the word for virgins. So some think it refers to soprano voices and others think it refers to a tune, according to the song of the virgins. Either way, the precise meaning is lost to history and doesn't impact on our understanding or appreciation of the psalm at all. The ascription tells us who originally sang it, but it doesn't tell us who originally wrote it. Many assume David, and it is hard to think of a compelling argument against that general assumption. There were any number of circumstances in David's life that could very well have been the occasion for this sort of song. He was often hiding himself in God from the power and malice of his enemies. And we can easily imagine a variety of narrative backdrops for these marvelous and inspired verses. It is a psalm for people under pressure. It is a psalm for people facing powerful and malicious enemies. It is a psalm for people who look to God for protection and deliverance. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It is so easy to hear bits and pieces of a mighty fortress in those verses, isn't it? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. You can definitely hear the inspiration of the psalm in those marvelous words. Now, some of the psalms celebrate victory over difficulties, but this psalm actually celebrates presence and refuge within our difficulties. Luther said, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, and against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Close quote. Thanks be to God. Now, we should probably just say a quick word about that term, Selah, which appears in your printed Bible after verse 3 and verse 7 and verse 11 of the psalm. You've heard me say this before. You've probably noticed as you read along at home that I don't generally vocalize the word when we encounter it in the text. Christians sometimes wonder how to handle this word. Derek Kidner says usefully, this word occurs 71 times and a further three times in Habakkuk 3, predominantly in books 1 to 3 of the Psalter. Probably it is the signal for an interlude or change of musical accompaniment. 
and the vast majority of commentators agree. Therefore, it's not part of the content of the psalm, and we're not even really sure what it means 100%. Therefore, it seems doubly wise to leave the word unvocalized, and that will generally be my habit throughout. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The King of Jacob is our fortress. Most commentators assume that the streams here, which make glad the city of God, represent the many ways that God refreshes and sustains his people. In this sense, Jerusalem, the city, stands symbolically for the church, as indeed it does in the book of Revelation. So Matthew Henry, for example, says here, God's word and ordinances are rivers and streams with which God makes his saints glad in cloudy and dark days, closed quote. I'm not sure how or why you would want to argue with that. God refreshes his people as he did in the Old Testament, so he does in the New He is in the midst of his people, and he feeds them, renews them, and restores them. He is a fortress with a fountain in the midst. Thanks be to God. Verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Safe inside the fountain fortress, the psalmist bids the troubled soul to take a walk with him upon the ramparts. Come, He says, behold the works of the Lord. Remember his works in days of old. Remember how he has saved us time and time again from the foe. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Be still, my friend, and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What can man do to us? What can the devil do to us? Whom then shall we fear? No true harm can come to the person who has found their refuge in the Lord. Thanks be to God. The RMM Bible reading plan has us reading two Psalms today, so we'll also take a look at Psalm 47. Its ascription reads as follows. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Here's what we know for sure about the psalm. It celebrates the power and victory of God over the enemies of God's people. In Christian history, it has commonly been used on Ascension Day, which is the 40th day after Easter, and which celebrates the ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ. That's what we know for sure. We don't know for sure when it was written. We don't know for sure who wrote it. Calvin says, unhelpfully, perhaps it was composed by David. (laughs) Well, that's, that's not as helpful as you might expect from Calvin, but it is about as much as we're going to get. Not many commentators say anything more specific than that. We also aren't entirely sure whether the verbs 
in verses 3 and 4 should be rendered in the past or future tense when translated into English. Hebrew doesn't have tenses in the same way that English does. It deals more in aspect, that is, whether the situation is viewed by the speaker or writer as a complete whole or as something that is developing. The verbs in verses 3 to 4 are imperfects, meaning that the writer sees this pattern as developing, or to say it negatively, he is not merely referring to something that happened in the past and that is finished. Therefore, some versions will put those verses in the English future tense, as per the New King James Version. It has it this way, Psalm 47, 3 to 4. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. But the ESV puts those verbs in the past tense, as if referring to events that have happened and are finished in the past. Now, obviously, that makes a huge difference in the ear of an English reader. Now, all commentators seem to agree that in some sense, this psalm is prophetical. Verse 9 makes that absolutely clear. The question then is simply this. Is the psalmist thinking about past local victories and from that extrapolating forward to predict a great global ascendancy embracing all the Gentile nations of the world? Or is this an explicitly messianic psalm predicting in the spirit the work of Christ and the victorious Gentile mission of the church? Meaning, is it all about Jesus or is only the last verse about Jesus? The older commentators tend to read the whole thing as messianic. So, for example, Martin Luther says about the psalm as a whole, this is a prophecy concerning Christ, close quote. Gill, Henry, Morrison, and Scott all read it the same way. Modern commentators tend to adopt more of a both-and approach. So, for example, Derek Kidner, while acknowledging that the original occasion for the psalm was likely some kind of festival celebrating a particular historical victory, goes on to say, but given the notion of God as king, it is a short step to creating the poetry that exploits the analogies it suggests festival or no festival. And more than poetry, this is prophecy whose climax is exceptionally far-reaching. Closed quote. Now that seems to be a very reasonable approach. I, I think that it's best to understand the psalmist here as looking at an actual victory, a particular victory, or perhaps a series of particular victories, and viewing them not merely, not only as things that God did in the past but rather as things that God typically does on behalf of his people and in pursuit of his promises. Now, this brings us, I think, to one of the most important interpretive issues when dealing with the Psalms. In in the mind of the psalmist, in the worldview of the Old Testament, I think you could even say, the past is not just the past. Since, Since God doesn't change, since God's powers are unlimited, and since God's character is unchanging, The past is not just the past. The past is also our best prediction of the future. If this is who God is, and if this is how God acts, then, as Kidner says, it's it's a very short step towards turning poetry that is about the past into prophecy that is about the future. There's there's no hard line between those things, and I, I think we see that time 
and time again in the Psalms. And so I think on one level, this is a celebration. It's a, it's a poem celebrating particular victories, but, but it is also in the spirit. There, there is after all one ultimate author of the Bible. And, and so in, in the spirit, this is also a prediction of the great end times victories of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And, and, and so I think that is a very balanced, a very faithful, a, a very biblically informed way for us to read this inspired text. So let's do that. Let's hear the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 47. This is God's word to us. Verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Now remember, the verbs in verses 3 to 4 are actually imperfects, uh, meaning they reflect upon events that are not understood as complete or whole. If the psalmist was merely describing a completed past event, he would have put his verbs in the perfect, which he did not. He chose to use imperfect verbs here. So at the very least, he is observing an ongoing pattern. This is what God does, he is saying. He subdues peoples and nations under our feet. He chooses our heritage. So whether or not it originally reflected upon historical events in the 10th century BC, ultimately it does refer to God's ongoing purposes still today. John Calvin says here, This language is applicable only to the kingdom of Christ, who is called a high and terrible king. Closed quote. Definitely, the psalmist is seeing a universal reign of God over all peoples. He is seeing all nations brought either under Israel or into Israel, something that certainly never happened in precisely that way in David's day or in the day of any other king in Israelite history. Stanley Jackie says here, This psalm can be justified only as an eschatological declaration. Its triumphalism is not to be attached to anything historical. Close quote. So again, this thought was inspired, or it began really as a reflection upon historical realities. But ultimately, the psalmist sees the pattern and then sees way past them and, and begins to speak of future or ultimate realities that look forward to the work and reign of Jesus Christ. Messiah will bring all peoples under or into Israel. We'll clarify that in just a moment. Messiah will choose our heritage for us. Verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. W.S. Plumer says here, this verse is the key to the right understanding of the whole psalm. Close quote. What he means is that we must see here a clear reference to the ascension of Christ into heaven. Of course, the church has historically understood the verse this way, which is why this psalm is read on Ascension Day. Jesus has gone up. Messiah has gone up. Jesus, Messiah, who is God, has gone up and has taken his seat and has begun to rule. Thanks be to God. And that's where the psalm goes. Verse 6. 
Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Notice here that the psalmist is seeing a king who is God. Not just God as king, but a king who is God. This is prophesied at several points in the Old Testament. We think of Isaiah's vision of the child that will come. We read that every Christmas. He speaks of a child who will be born and who will be given a series of marvelous names. Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the child who will govern, the king, will also be called Mighty God. Are you hearing that? Isaiah must have been full of the same Holy Spirit as the psalmist was. They're both seeing a coming king who will also be God. Hallelujah. But this coming divine king will not just rule over Israel. Oh, no. That would be far too small a thing for this king. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now, notice very carefully the word as in the middle of verse 9. The psalmist doesn't say that the nations gather with the people of the God of Abraham. No, it's far stronger than that. The text says that the nations gather, the, the Gentiles gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This is exactly what Paul was trying to get at in Galatians. In Galatians 3, 7 to 8, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. Closed quote. Abraham isn't the father of the Jews. Abraham was a Gentile when the promises of God were given to him. He had not yet been circumcised. Paul makes that point explicitly in Romans 4, 10 to 11. There, Paul asks and answers the question, was it before or after he had been circumcised? He being Abraham. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Closed quote. Are you hearing that? Abraham received the promises of God before he was circumcised. That is, while he was a Gentile so that he would be the father of all who believe, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That is what was being foreseen in Psalm 47.9. People from all nations gathering as, not with, as the people of the God of Abraham. And we can now add through faith in the life and work of, of Jesus Christ, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is very exalted. For the shields of the earth belong to God. That phrase means protection and refuge, as in Psalm 212, 
kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him, in Christ, in the Son, in the King, in God, who is God above the nations, for he is very exalted. Indeed, he will rule over all things for the glory of the Father and for the good of his people forever. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab, and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.